0: morning, our sermon text this morning, as Sam mentioned, is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. I'd like to read that. If you'd all please stand once again with me as I read our text this morning. Mark four thirty-five through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You may be seated. Will you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, our good shepherd, have mercy on your sheep. May we hear your voice. And hearing your voice, may we be still and know that you are God. Help us to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, as the author and perfecter of our faith. And strengthen our faith so we can act on your promise to never leave us or forsake us. May we know you as our helper and may your help and presence calm our fears. Amen. I suppose we all have a story or two we could tell about being afraid that has something to do with water. My fear and water story happened about five years ago. We went up to East Tawas for a weekend uh, during the summer and we stayed with Carol's aunt and uncle. Uncle Jack took a few of us out on his speedboat to do a little tubing and water skiing. Now, I hadn't been skiing in over 30 years, so I was nervous, but I wanted to see if I could still do it. I was never good at it, but I wanted to see if I could do it. It started out as a calm day, but as we drove to the boat launch in town, the wind started to change a little. We could see waves that looked bigger than I wanted, which was, we could see waves. (laughs) But I was committed, sort of, so out we went. And I got up okay, I was excited about that, but I, I really didn't want to get out of the wake. I always hated that. I think I managed to stay behind the boat, but I, I started to get tired, so I just let go. But as I sank into the water, I ended up getting some water uh, up, like up my nose and down and in my mouth. I started kind of choking and kind of panicked. I forgot I was wearing a life jacket. Um, I saw the boat sort of far away, you know, and then turning around, and I was freaking out, actually. Um, And the thought crossed my mind that this was going to be the end, like that was going to be it. But Uncle Jack did get back to me in time, got into the boat, and recovered from my scare. But it was scary. This morning, I'd like to simply trace the events of of this fear and water story from the Gospel of Mark from the perspective of answering these questions. What is Jesus doing or what is being done to him? And I see seven answers in this short this short story from Mark. And the title I've got is The Lord of the Storm. The Lord of the Storm leads, allows, sleeps, is awakened, rebukes, questions, and the Lord of the Storm is feared. First, the Lord of the Storm leads, verses 35 and 36. Jesus leads his followers out to sea. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Jesus had come to the end of a long day of teaching by the lake. And you might remember that leading up to this event or this evening, the Pharisees had accused him of being controlled by Beelzebul. His mother and brothers wanted to take him back to Nazareth because they thought he was crazy. And on this day, he had taught the parables of the sower and a bunch of other parables of the kingdom of God. It had been a long day. So Jesus says, let us go across to the other side, leaving the the Jewish territory of Galilee, across the Sea of Galilee, to the Gentile territory of the Decapolis, which just just means ten cities, on the eastern side of that great lake. Now, for ancient people, the waters were dangerous and mysterious, and it was evening, thus furthering the sense of mystery and and danger. But professional fishermen were among Jesus' friends, so they anticipated no great difficulty. And it was Jesus' idea to get into the boat and cross the sea, so everything should turn out fine. He said to them, so the disciples had Jesus' authoritative word. They were in the right place. They were literally doing exactly what the Lord had told them to do. So Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Mark adds a detail that they took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. And this refers back to the beginning of chapter 4 where it says, Again, Jesus began to teach by the sea and a very large crowd gathered around about him. So that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So Jesus was already in a boat teaching, or at least he had been in the boat and the area of the boat teaching and interacting with a very large, a large crowd all day. And Mark also tells us that there were other boats tagging along. And I read that uh, in 1986, an ancient boat was actually found in the Sea of Galilee, that has been dated from around or before the first century A.D. And if that boat is an accurate example of the kind of boat Jesus and the people were sailing in, then these boats were about 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and they could hold each hold about 15 people. And I'm going to do a little uh, Dr. Ed Boritz thing. Um, so that would be roughly from the end of the piano in length to the corner of the organ. So it's not teeny tiny. It's a pretty big boat and then width would be like from the front of the communion table to this rail. So it's, you know, fairly large. So there were many eyewitnesses then to this event. We've got a bunch of boats It wasn't just Jesus and the disciples. There were others that tagged along. So this is no no myth. As Paul explains that there were hundreds of witnesses who saw the resurrected Lord in 1 Corinthians 15. So, So there were dozens, or depending on how many other boats there were, perhaps hundreds of witnesses who experienced this calming that Jesus did, the calming of the storm that was about to break. So two things to remember here. One, the claims of Christ are reliable, and most important for us to honestly evaluate. And two, it was Jesus who led them out to sea. Second, the Lord of the storm allows, verse 37, Jesus allows a storm. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Matthew tells us that without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake. Commentators tell us that the high winds, and Sam already alluded to this, the high winds and the narrow valleys that surrounded the Sea of Galilee functioned as wind tunnels. And the Greek here actually uh, is used to describe a, a great windstorm, a furious squall, a whirlwind, or even a hurricane. Matthew uses the word seismos, think of our seismic activity, right? Earthquake. It was as if the lake was being shaken. Literally, this was a mega storm. And we're told that the boat was already filling. The waves kept spilling over into the boat. Strong winds can certainly inspire fear. Uh, A year ago, we had some, some trees trimmed and taken down in our yard. And one was a big maple that was right behind our house. When storms with strong winds would come, we would keep an eye uh, on that tree, especially because it always seemed to bend sort of ominously, and we were afraid it would fall on our house. It never did, uh, but it could have. It was kind of scary. Actually, one branch of it did at one point, but it didn't do too much damage. Winds can cause fear. Flooding can drive us to our wits' end, too. Our basement has flooded a handful of times, but the worst was what I call the flood of 2020. Uh, now, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. I am truly a city boy. I don't, didn't know what a sump pump was until we bought our house in Burton, like, 21 years ago. I hate sump pumps, especially when they and the battery backup both fail in the middle of the night for no apparent reason. So I woke up one January morning in 2020, I think maybe I I heard some kind of mysterious buzzing. Uh, I went down to the basement, got to the the bottom of the stairs, discovered a couple of inches of water covering almost most of the floor. I was not happy. Um, Quite the opposite. John Calvin writes of the storm in our text this morning, It is certain that the storm which agitated the lake was not accidental. For how would God have permitted his son to be driven about at random by the violence of the waves? But on this occasion, he intended to make known to the apostles how weak and inconsiderable their faith still was. Though Christ's sleep was natural, yet it served the additional purpose of making the disciples better acquainted with their weakness. Calvin continues, Let us therefore conclude that All this was arranged by the secret providence of God. That Christ was asleep, that a violent tempest arose, and that the waves covered the ship which was in imminent danger of perishing. And let us learn hence that whenever any adverse occurrence takes place, the Lord tries our faith. If the distresses grow to such a height as almost to overwhelm us, let us believe that God does it with the same design of exercising our patience or bringing to light in this way our hidden weaknesses. So storms are actually part of the process of spiritual growth. But when we are trying to live in obedience to God's will and things get hard and we, we, we start to fear and fret, that fear can lead to sinking Of course, we have the example of Peter walking on the water uh, with Jesus, which Pete will be preaching on in a couple of weeks. In Matthew 14, it says, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, To him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. God told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's certainly a mystery here that I don't quite get. I don't understand, but but the Lord leads His people, and sometimes He allows us to endure storms, for His greater glory, and our greatest ultimate good. Through uh, third, the Lord of the storm sleeps. The Lord of the Storm Sleeps, verse 38, first part. Here, Jesus demonstrates perfect trust in the Father. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Like I said, Jesus was exhausted from a full day of teaching, so while they were sailing, he fell asleep. Jesus lay his head down on a sailor's leather rowing cushion, and though he was very tired, Jesus was also fearless in his trust of his Father. The seasoned fishermen who could be expected to have endured storms, they're the ones who panic, while Jesus, the the landlubber, sleeps in what's likely the driest spot in the craft. The disciples fail to trust in Jesus, while Jesus is trusting not only in their seamanship, but also in the God who controls the waters. There are echoes of Jonah here, as we read earlier, Jonah 1.5, but Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. But Jesus is restoring people to God, bringing the kingdom of God. He is not running from his Father's will, but he is fearless in carrying out his Father's will. And because he is fearless in his trust in his Father, he sleeps during the storm. I don't know who first said this, but sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to take a nap. For us, this is at at the very least a plug for us to to make a way to practice some kind of restfulness from the cares of the world and our work on the Lord's day. We need to entrust ourselves to our good, merciful, heavenly Father and receive what he provides for our care and growth in holiness. Fourth, the Lord of the storm is awakened second part of verse 38. Jesus is awakened by his disciples. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They, they wake him up with a cry of reproach at his apparent indifference to their situation. Do you not care? Are you not concerned or troubled? Jesus, you labored and worked tirelessly to minister to the crowds of people, but you're asleep in our time of need. Perhaps a psalm they learned as children came to their minds. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Wake up and help us, Lord. Now, Luke makes it clear that they were in great danger. They, the danger, the risk, was, it was not fake. It wasn't imagined. They weren't pretending. The threat was real. They said, we're going to drown. Matthew tells us that they did call out to Jesus for help. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Lord, save us, we're going to drown. A pious prayer. This is a good and holy prayer, one would think. But again, Calvin, Calvin suggests that the disciples actually sinned and that they thought Jesus needed to be awakened in order to be able to rescue them. They attach too much importance to the bodily presence of their master. They ought to have believed that the divinity of Christ was not oppressed by his sleep. And to his divinity, they ought to have had recourse. Psalm 121 says, I lift up, my, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not... Uh-oh, my battery. No, I got cut out for just a second. That was a mini storm. Okay. (laughs) Teeny tiny one. Uh, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. So come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus always ready stands to save you full of pity love and power fifth the lord of the storm rebukes verse 39 jesus brings a great calm and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm Reading this, I find myself asking this question, how do I respond when awakened? Am I grumpy? Do I need some me time before I can function properly in polite society? Notice that Jesus immediately attends to the disciples' danger. In the brevity of the way that Mark records this, we don't get the impression that Jesus said, hey guys... I know you have a little wind and water situation here, but let me just stretch a little, clear my head. Oh, I see, uh, I don't need to splash some cold water on my face, but, but a cup of coffee would really be nice. Just give me a minute, then I'll take a look at your problem and see what I can do. No, this is not how Jesus acts when awakened. Instead, notice the quick action and the great patience of our Lord. He didn't rebuke the disciples first. How many of us would have had some words to say before intervening to help? But God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And and the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus woke up and he rebuked the wind. He ordered the wind and sea, be silent, be still, be quiet, be muzzled and remain muzzled. Be muzzled was actually somewhat of a technical term for dispossessing a demon of of its power. And it may suggest that Jesus recognized some demonic powers behind this ferocious storm. Christ commands silence, stillness, not that the lake was sentient or, or had any perception, but to show that the power of his voice reached even the elements which were devoid of feeling. Jesus warns the wind, and he berates the waves. Jesus' command is an abrupt, curt, and biting charge, pointedly expressing disapproval, and it connotes a sharp or harsh tone. Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Shut up! And there was a great calm. I love that phrase. It became completely calm. The Greek uses mega again. Great, a vehement, a violent a violent calm. It was a great and sudden calm. Jesus brought a mega calm to match the mega storm. Do you find yourself in a place where you need Jesus to bring his mega calm to your life? May the Lord of the storm bring a holy, great calm to our spirits. And may he be glorified in all the details of our lives. The Lord of the storm rebukes and he brings a great calm. Sixth, the Lord of the storm questions. Verse 40. Jesus questions the disciples. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? Calvin translates it. Why are you so timid? How have you not confidence? He continues, their alarm goes beyond proper bounds. It is immoderate dread, the tendency of which is not to exercise their faith, but to banish it from their minds. It is not every kind of fear that is opposed to faith, but Jesus rebukes his disciples for cowardly fear, for being cowardly and timid. He He accuses them of having fear instead of faith. They were right in turning to Jesus, but he exhorts them regarding their fear and feeling of being forsaken by God. In fact, their faith was so small, so little, as to be ineffective, defective, or or deficient. It 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 was as if they had no faith at all. Matthew writes that Jesus said, "'You of little faith, why are you so afraid?' Luke says, Jesus asked, where is your faith? You're not like the crowds. I've been with you. You should know better. Remember Jesus' words that we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. He said to them, to you has been given the power, uh, given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. But despite Jesus' tutoring, it still had not dawned on them that God's authority and power were present in Jesus. You might remember Mark 4, 24 and 25 from Pete's sermon last week. He said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The disciples had not used an appropriate measure in learning from Jesus and acting on his teaching. Now to face calamity and not fear would be abnormal. But fear should turn us to God. Returning once again to John Calvin... Fear which awakens faith is not in itself faulty till it go beyond bounds and become excessive. Its excess lies in disturbing or weakening the composure of faith, which ought to rest on the word of God. But as it never happens that believers exercise such restraint on themselves as to keep their faith from being injured, our fear is almost always attended by sin. Yet we ought to be aware that it is not every kind of fear which indicates a want of faith, a lack of faith, but only that dread and which, which disturbs the peace of the conscience in such a manner that it does not rest on the promise of God. And the promises of God include these words from Paul. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May God so work in our hearts that in in all our fears, we would not lose faith but would be strengthened in faith in the persistent seeking of Jesus. And may we take comfort in the fact that though our faith may at times be small like that of the disciples, as Jesus stayed with them, So Jesus stays with us. We are fickle and changing, but he is constant. For not only has he promised to be with us always to the end of the age, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Last, number seven, the Lord of the storm is feared, verse 41. Jesus' words and actions invite the question that must be answered. They were filled with fear, great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? As the boat had been filling with water, they were now filled with great fear. They were terrified. The Greek uses mega, mega once again here and it expresses astonishment, amazement. Literally, they feared a great fear. They feared a mega fear. But this fear was different than the, from the cowardly fear the disciples had earlier. This refers to a reverence that that overtakes a a person, that overtakes people in the presence of supernatural power. Now they were filled with great fear, but it was a great fear of God that could take away fear of the world. But their question, who is this, indicates that they did not fully comprehend the significance of all they were experiencing. For instilling the storm... Jesus assumed the authority exercised only by God in the Old Testament. Psalm 89 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the seas. When, it, when its waves rise, you still them. Matthew puts this, their question in these words What kind of man is this? And this is the greater question. The question that is bigger than our questions about the storms we face. The question that is bigger than our questions about the problem of pain and suffering in the world. So let's not let the storms of life distract us from the one question that matters above all others. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Rather, let life's storms fulfill their intended purpose and draw us to the Lord of the storm, the great I Am. Who is this? He is God, God in the flesh. Yahweh, come in the flesh. As the Christmas carol so beautifully says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Disciples, the maker of the universe is standing in a boat in the Sea of Galilee with you. Trust him, obey him, worship him, and love him. He has power of the laws and forces of nature. But the disciples underestimated Jesus. They failed to recognize that that he is with his people in all situations, even when it doesn't look like it, even when it seems to us that he's sleeping, even when there seems to be no author of the story. We often underestimate Jesus. But as the Lord did not give up on or leave his disciples, he does not give up on or leave us. Instead, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Only God has the power to deliver and to save from the brokenness of our world and the bondage of sinful rebellion. Against him, So Jesus invites the question, who then is this? And everything depends on how we answer that question. So ladies, moms on this Mother's Day, Christian brothers and sisters on this Lord's Day, do you find yourself prone to worry, fear, and anxious thoughts? Do you reel and stagger and find yourself at your wit's end due to the storm you've been called to sail through? Is your faith at times small? Be encouraged by God's word today. Strengthen the weak hands, Isaiah says, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will come and save you. Now Some storms are are small small squalls of of indecision. On the one hand, we've got Paul's words in uh, the end of 1 Corinthians. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work is open to me and there are many adversaries. A principle here is that if you have some level of confidence that, that your current circumstances are due to the good providence of God and that you're not living contrary to or breaking any moral principles or teachings of Scripture, but the way is hard and you're in a storm, then God might be calling you to simply persevere just a little while longer. On the other hand, we have Paul writing in 1 Corinthians earlier, "...each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity." So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let them them remain with God. So sometimes it seems that God has brought us to a place where we're hemmed in on every side and that the only thing to do and the most difficult thing to do is to just stay the course. But all things being the same, if in God's providence an opportunity presents itself that would make the way less difficult, we're free to take it. It is a great source of encouragement for followers of Jesus to remember who they serve, the triune creator of this universe. The power of the eternal son protects and guides with utter reliability, even in great distress. Since Jesus has paid the price for our sinful rebellion and has overcome the powers of Satan and the grip of death, his followers are in good hands. Whether at any given moment this results in life, Or in death. For in the gospel, we know that because Christ has died and risen, and we are united to him, all that happens to us comes to us from the hand of a loving Father. All wrath has been removed, he does everything for our good. So, does Jesus still love you when you go through a mega storm? When you call out with the disciples, Lord, don't you care if we drown? Yes. Yes. A thousand million times, yes. Jesus still loves us. For Jesus, the sinless and perfectly righteous Son of God, endured the megastorm of megastorms when he carried the weight of our sins on the cross. For Jesus, bruised, battered, broken, and bleeding on the cross, cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was actually forsaken of his Father. His hands and feet were impaled to the wood of the mast of the cross so that though we might feel forsaken, we will never actually be forsaken by our Heavenly Father. But sometimes, sometimes Jesus preaches to us from the boat on the restless sea. In Matthew we read, Then some of the scribes scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. As the Son of God trusted in his Father, so we can entrust ourselves to the Lord of the storm. The Lord of the storm, he is fearless. He is not afraid, surprised, or caught off guard By anything. And he's got the whole world in his hands. Psalm 107 includes a passage that beautifully describes God's help to his people through storms in ancient history and an almost prophetic summary of the story we've been considering this morning. I think we can also read it as a poetic picture of our present lives, of faith in the Lord, of the storm, and of our anticipation of the great calm. The great calm he will one day bring. So, we all please stand with me. It's in your bulletin on the page with the, the outline. And I'd like to read together Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32. Please read with me. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waves. They saw the deeds of the Lord his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Will you please pray with me? O Lord of the storm, Jesus, our Captain and Savior, may you pour out your great calm in our lives, and may we praise you for your steadfast love, for your wondrous works for the children of man. You are our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Please shower us with your grace, deliver us from our sins, and help us live lives of trust in you. And may we worship you through whatever storms you call us to. Lord, we do believe. Help thou our unbelief. And may we in peace both lie down and sleep, knowing that you alone, O Lord, make us dwell in safety. For you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And by your mighty power, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble, it's swelling. Amen. If you'd please stay standing as we sing our closing hymn, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. benediction is from 2 Thessalonians 3, 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.